This is Podco Media Networks. Welcome to the Deep Dive. I'm your host, Phila McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist, strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you a guest from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. Today's guest is Rob Principe, founder of the Scratch Academy. Me and Rob go back a little ways. We share a little academic institution that some people might have heard of called Duke University. We have that in common, but we also share a love of music, a love of culture, and I'm really excited to have this conversation with him. So welcome to the show, Rob. Philip, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me on. You've done a lot of stuff with the Scratch Academy. It's grown to be a leading force in music and DJ culture, but I think a lot of people might not know the story behind you starting Scratch Academy, being a part of the founding team. I think that's a great place to start our conversation with you just giving some background as to what caused you to be a part of Scratch Academy and start this institution. Great question. I get asked that a lot, and it goes back to my mid-20s when I was at an event that a DJ named Kid Capri was spinning. For those that don't know, Kid Capri is a worldwide famous but New York old school mixtape DJ. And he was DJing this event. And I had what many people have throughout their life. I had a religious music experience. Some people have that with their headphones on in their bedroom, some in a car with friends, some at a music festival, you know, with 30,000 other people. For me, it was when Kid Capri spoke to me with his music. He knew what I wanted to hear before I knew I wanted to hear it. And at that moment, I walked out and I mean, he just controlled the dance floor. He told people when they could take bathroom breaks with his music. He told them when they can go to the bar and get another drink. And he told them when they needed to be on the dance floor. And I was just in awe. And I left that room thinking, how do I learn how to do that? The DJ art form is so amazing and so dynamic, but it always been kind of an art form that you had to get tutored on, sort of apprenticed. I wanted to be able to learn that art form in a more, I guess, academic way. So that was the initial idea behind founding the Scratch DJ Academy. I wanted to learn how to DJ. So I sat with the idea for a while, and then I realized that I needed a partner in the space because while I was a music enthusiast, I had no experience in the music business. I'd worked biz dev jobs and marketing jobs at some pretty big companies, but I'd never been an entrepreneur before, nor had I done anything in the DJ space. So I put together a list of DJs that I thought would make for great partners. And at the top of that list was Jam Master Jay, the legendary DJ from Run DMC. And I knew some people that had booked Run DMC for corporate events, and they introduced me to Jay's manager at the time. And I chased her around for a good eight months. And then finally, I get the call. Run DMC is performing at the David Letterman show at the Ed Sullivan Theater. Jay wants to talk to you in the green room before, you know, before they go on stage. So I ran home to grab something. And what I grabbed was when I was 12 years old, I met Run DMC on an airplane on the way from Denver to San Diego. They were performing in the New York City Fresh Fest, which was the world's first hip hop arena tour. It was Run DMC and I mean everybody, Grandmaster Flash, Furious Five, Houdini, Curtis Blow, Fatboy, Pepper, LL Cool J, I mean, you name it, just hip hop royalty. They took pictures with me on the tarmac of the Denver airport, and I brought that picture with me. So when I got to meet Jay, he gave me his hand to shake. He said, nice to meet you. I said, we already met 20 years ago. And I showed him the picture, and he was floored by it. But he said, you know, tell me a little more about the Scratch DJ Academy. And I said, well, when jazz came out in the 50s and 60s, it was this unconstructed esoteric art form dominated by heroin users, especially when the U.S. culture was very vanilla coming out of the Beatles era, coming out of the Elvis era. And here was this art form that was such an antithesis to the current societal trends. Fast forward to today, jazz is taught in every single college and university around the world, and the world is a better place for it. And I said, I want to do a similar thing for the DJ art form. 
DJs are musicians, turntables are instruments, and the DJ is an artist. And I want to elevate and validate the art form and provide access and an on-ramp to it for those that couldn't before been able to do that. And he just said, I'm in, let's get this started. So that was the initial two-minute make or break pitch that I had to do. But I also had done a tremendous amount of research. I was out at all the DJ battles, talking to the DJs. So I laid a lot of the groundwork. And then when I partnered with Jay, it just really helped get the initiative off the ground. Jam Master Jay is a legend, obviously. You know, rest in peace to Jam Master Jay. I went to Fresh Fest, too. It was one of my first concerts. I always reference Fresh Fest as this just amazing moment. And as someone who's usually skeptical of brand involvement, one of the things I I do highlight about Fresh Fest is that Sprite was a very early sponsor of Fresh Fest. And they understood hip hop at a time that those mid 80s, when very few people were willing to take a stand and say, we want to actively and vocally be a part of this community. And now hip hop is one of the most significant, I say it's the most significant musical force in the world in terms of its influence. And, you know, Jam Master J and Run DMC were right at the forefront of that. So it's interesting that we share that moment. I can tell you stories on stories, but my mother sat next to Lior Cohen, who was the manager of Run DMC at the time. I was 12 years old. So he gave us backstage passes. My mother did not want to go to this concert. I so wonder I why. Another friend. <laughs> yeah, I grabbed another friend and his father, and we went backstage. It was just a different era of music, and there was a, an electricity in the backstage area. And I remember being around the Fat Boys and Salt and Pepper and just feeling that energy of like, this is not just a movement, a movement start somewhere and end somewhere. This is a force that I just felt was going to be something so monumental and so timeless. But, you know, little old me at 12 years old, I couldn't really see the acts from side stage and backstage. So instead of wanting to hang out with all these hip hop superstars, I found Lior and I went up to him and I said, hey, it's a little hard for me to see the music. Do you mind if uh, you have a couple tickets? Can I go in the seats and watch from there? And he was like, all right, kids, go ahead. <laughs> so I, I, I sat and watched from there. Yeah. But to your point, you know, the brands that have gotten involved early and have done it authentically have really done a great job of helping to propel the, you know, partners in the art form. And hip hop in general has done a really good job of embracing that too. So your point's well taken. You said a couple of things that really stuck out in my mind as it compares to sort of the cultural spaces that we're in now. You mentioned recognizing that this is an art form, that DJing, the art of using music is truly an art form. And that feeling of being in a space where someone like Kid Capri created this live experience that could not be duplicated, maybe in any other medium. Like, Talk about how you've incorporated those feelings, that energy, and weaved it into what Scratch Academy does so as to maintain that connection to the art form, the skill, and the commercial aspect of it as well. Yeah, there's so much that goes on at Scratch DJ Academy, and some of it is a result of good things, and some are bad things, and some are indifferent. One of the bad things that has happened is record shops have shut down. So... There's just not that many record shops. So where do like-minded people get together that have an interest in music outside of concerts or clubs or venues like that? So the Scratch DJ Academy became a default place for people that loved music and wanted to interact with it more to be a part of a community. And technology, for better or for worse, has allowed people to put 10,000 songs on something the size of an inch and be able to interact with music more. So The democratization of music has really empowered more people to, we like to think, to bring out their inner DJ. And we define the DJ as anyone that controls the music. So you can be in your car changing the radio station, you're the DJ. You could be at home putting music on for a holiday party, you're the DJ. You could be downloading music to a Spotify playlist, you're the DJ. So we all have an inner DJ, 
And it's our job at the Scratch DJ Academy to make you a better DJ. But to get to answer your question, first things first, when we talk about learning to DJ, it's an instrument. Turntables are an instrument. And you can't sit down and put your fingers on the keys for a half hour every two weeks and learn to play piano proficiently. Same thing with turntables. A lot of people have the misconception that how hard can it be? You're just putting on one song after another. Oh, I can pick this up. Well, it's an art form. There's a lot of math and science and academia that goes into it, training your ears, just like learning any other instrument. So the more you put into it, the more you get out of it. With that said, once you understand BPMs and beat matching and music, basic music theory, then a lot of it becomes about your own style and your own creativity. And at the Academy, we talk about us being genre agnostic. So we're not there to tell you what to paint. We're there to teach you how to paint. So what you paint on that canvas is on you, whether that's hip hop or house or R&B or Motown, soul, classics, funk. We're not there to tell you what to play. And Jam SJ was very insistent on that. This is not about hip hop. This is not about rock. This is about you. It's about learning an instrument and being a part of the art form and being a musician and an artist. So once you kind of have the musician side of it down, then it's a lot of the artist side of it. And that's the creativity that you bring. And that really is about that Kid Capri song selection, knowing how to build a set, knowing how to build energy, knowing what direction you want to go with the genre of music, knowing when on the bell curve to drop that down so that you can't just play bangers the entire night. There's so much art to it, too. And I think the artists, whether they're playing original music or they're DJing other top 40 music or digging into the crates, the authenticity shines through with how they weave together a set. And it's really hard to tell the difference between a good DJ and a great DJ, but you can always tell the difference between a sub-average DJ and a really good DJ because you can just hear it. You can hear the authenticity in their set. Certainly, you know, how clean their transitions are on the musician side, but on the artist side, it becomes really clear when someone's heart and passion is in the art form. It's interesting. There's a lot to unpack in that. And I'm curious about how does one balance or is there a way to balance those two forces, right? Because we do want to release or let people release their inner DJ. And I think there is a huge upside component to that piece, particularly as music is just this tremendous force in our lives. And streaming has made that even more so. Do you run into issues? Because I'm someone who who DJs. I'm not professional like Jam Master J or anyone like that. But what I've seen is that there's a challenge that everyone now thinks anyone can do this, yeah. right? So this... In some ways, I'm seeing this weird split where the money and the opportunity at the very top of the DJing world is never been higher. But those that are, I won't say middle rung, these are words I'm using for lack of better words. People will equate a really good professional DJ with just anybody who puts on music. At least that's, that's been my experience. So I'm curious, have you come across that and what are your thoughts on how to make that distinction? Yeah, it's a really tricky debate that's been swirling around the DJ community for probably a decade now. You know, are DJs just button pushers? If your father was a celebrity and you become a DJ and you don't really know how to DJ, does that count? Are you a DJ? And it's really tricky to unpack, as you were saying before. I moderated a panel at Winter Music Conference years ago, and I had some phenomenal DJs. And the panel was about our DJs button pushers. Mm -hmm. And that was my first question. And I forget who was sitting next to me, but I said, our DJs button pushers. And he said, you know, I'm tired of talking about this. And I said, well, look, we got 90 minutes left. This is the subject of the panel. Let's dig into it. The net of it was, we don't care as DJs and artists. What matters is the consumer. So if somebody's going to go pay a ticket because they want that experience of me DJing, knowing that I am not reading the crowd, I'm DJing off a set list, my lights are synced to the music, my 
audiovisual is synced. My pyro is synced. There's nothing new. I played the same set last night and I'm not even DJing. I'm just hitting a button. Does that matter? Well, it matters if people pay the money to see it. And that was their conclusion. That was the industry's conclusion. It's not up to us. It's up to the consumer. So from that perspective, I understand. People go to music festivals. They go to see celebrity DJs because they want that experience. Not necessarily. Maybe it's an education thing because they really understand what they should be listening for and what qualifies that person to really be the maestro of that, the quarterback of the music for that evening. But the other side of the DJ industry who spent all their lives, all their passion, all their money on treating this like a sacred art form, they're very offended by it. The line got jumped for them. People who are making the money, and you're right, it is the haves and the have-nots, and the haves are insane. $60, $70 million a year haves, million-dollar residencies. They might not be any better DJs, and in many cases, I could list 100 DJs that are better technically than any celebrity DJ, but struggle to make ends meet. And that is the frustrating part. You know, that's the underside of it. Your talent and skill and passion don't always translate to the commercial success. What translates to the commercial success is how many followers you have, how famous you are, you know, what breaks you caught along the way. and, And a lot of things that contribute to making anybody a superstar when it's not necessarily the skill behind it. So inside the industry, there's a lot of push and pull on this. You know, of course, where we come from, we have just ultimate respect for the art form. We're not training people to be superstars. We're teaching people an instrument and we teach on techniques. So we're literally teaching on the acoustic guitar. We're not even letting you get to the electric guitar and certainly on controllers, which we do have and people can learn on them if they want to. You know, you could hit sync buttons and you're beat matching without training your ear to do it. The technology has enabled a lot of people to cheat, but it's really not for me to decide who is a DJ and who isn't. It's really people's likes and clicks and dollars that ultimately determine where they want to see the industry going. But from our perspective, the heart of it is always in the passion of the people that take the time to learn it the right way. It sounds like DJ culture can mean different things to different people, right? So you and I came to DJ culture through hip hop. And when I say hip hop, I'm using what I would call related music forms in the sense that obviously hip hop, which is born of sampling from funk and jazz and R&B, any DJ, like when I was going to parties in high school, DJs didn't just play hip hop, even though they might've been hip hop DJs, right? So I'm making like a little distinction there. But what's interesting to me is like when you name these mega superstars, right? Like in DJing, and I'm only speaking from a money perspective, right? Yeah. You know, they're the names that many people would know. They're Calvin Harris, they're Tiesto, and a few others. And the music there is largely, we'll paint another broad brush, EDM. I hate that term, but that's right. it's the popular term people will know. I think about DJs that you already referenced, right? Like Kid Capri, Jazzy Jeff, who in my mind is the greatest DJ I've ever heard. The Jam Master Jays of the world, right? So there is a split in the culture, not just the DJ culture, but also in the music genre, right? Where we're seeing sort of like this EDM space, get the residencies, the Vegas stuff, the Ibiza stuff. And hip hop is still huge, but it's club-based, studio-based. A lot of hip hop DJs rather are producers as well. So I'm curious, like, how does that play out in the other parts of your business, which is doing events, which is something I really want to get to. So I'm curious, as much as you're training people on the acoustic side of the instrument, now that you also do events and you're booking like tons and tons of DJs nationally, how do you deal with the dichotomy and the culture there? Does it even come up? How relevant are those conversations on the booking side? Look, when it comes to, you know, we have two divisions under Scratch Music Group. The first is Scratch DJ Academy, where we teach people how to DJ. Second is Scratch Events where we provide DJs for corporate and private events. And graduates from the academy can audition and apply into the Scratch Events Talent Network to become a DJ in our network. But we have about 5,600 DJs in our talent network. We have about a 7% acceptance rate into the network, average tenure of about seven and a half 
to seven and three quarter years, DJs stay with us and we stay with them. And we do about, you know, somewhere between 12 and 15,000 events a year. So it's pretty staggering. And, and a majority of those, a vast majority of those are corporate events. So what's best for us is generally open format DJs. DJs that have a huge appreciation for all different genres can be able to be nimble and fluid and be able to deliver on what the client's needs are. Because at the end of the day, it's client-centric for us. When a client has an event, let's say it's a holiday party, and they know what they want to hear, and they'll give us music direction. And the DJs that we're working with to fulfill that need are able to nail that spectrum. In addition to being what they need to be to be a good corporate DJ, really responsible, really responsive, really great with clients, really great with us, on time, clean setups, great equipment, all that jazz. All that being said, the corporate wave moved. You know, it really was hip hop for the longest period of time and pop, right? Because so much of pop was hip hop. And then the EDM wave hit. Mm-hmm. And then so much of the EDM wave became the genre du jour from our clients. And then EDM merged into pop, right? When you have Rihanna and Calvin Harris or whoever it may be, and any of the EDM stars or producers. And now the pendulum is swinging back more to hip hop and top 40. EDM has taken a little bit of a backseat. We just have to kind of ride the wave of being responsible enough to provide the DJs for the events that have the right skill set that can meet their needs. Granted, if you needed a female punk rock DJ in Albuquerque, we have two. For the most part, we really need to be able to be responsive and pivot quickly. And the best DJs that can do that for us are kind of open format DJs. It's interesting that this idea of music becoming more a part of the branded experience seems to be very much dovetailing with your strategy, right? That there's a connection between having music, having curation through the DJ and driving the brand experience. Can you walk me through if that's part of the equation you guys are thinking about? Is that a part of the synergy that you're providing to brands when they're looking for DJs? Yeah, I mean, basically... What our job is to do is to have a seat at the table with brands and empower them to connect to their consumer or their constituent or whatever it might be through the platform of music vis-a-vis the DJ. So we want to help bridge the gap. Music is an international language. It's something that everybody that walks into that store has an affinity for. Everybody that uses that phone or wears that sneaker The one thing that connects everybody is music and brands historically did not have budgets for this. You know, they had print budgets, they had on-air budgets, then they had online budgets and social media influencer budgets, but rarely did they have music budgets. And that's what I saw as a huge defect in the agency brand space. So we kind of came in and said, hey, look, we don't want to replace anybody. We're not going to tell you where to spend your ad dollars. But when it comes to music, we want to sit at the table. This is what we do. And we're going to use music as a platform for you. And let us show you how it works. Whether that's teaching people how to DJ at an event instead of giving away a keychain. Whether that's strategically placing DJs to drive and monetize traffic. If it's a retail space, in the hospitality space. Whether that's consulting on playlists for fitness space. Whether it's training fitness instructors on how to utilize music so that when they're in their fitness classes, they can better speak to their participants or putting a DJ in a soul cycle class. It's basically trying to carve out a new budget in the brand world that specifically focuses on music. And it's been an uphill battle because there's a lot of education. You're kind of in the Amazon with the machete explaining to them why they should be doing this. They get it. But generally, most brands are risk averse. So you kind of have to educate them. They have to see some other brands doing it. But occasionally, you'll get some really gutsy people that totally get it and say, this is what we're going to do. Let's do it. I agree that brands are very risk adverse. But it would seem that music from Michael Jackson and Pepsi, right? And the Be Like Mike jingle, you would think that music and branding would seem to have always gone hand in hand. 
What do you think was the hesitation in working, not just with you guys, but working with DJs and yeah. having this sort of very specific musical touch point? And how did you overcome it? It's a great question. I think most brands saw Pepsi Super Bowl as very risky, strategic decisions that brands made with massive budgets, and it worked for those mm. brands, as opposed to shaking up what they, you know, they have agencies in there every day telling them you need to allocate this amount of money for print, this amount of money for online, this amount of money for experiential. So the whole system is not set up to really allow newcomers in there. It took a long time for online and social media to get in there, despite how huge of a driving force that was. So I think DJs as an asset class are looked at more as a niche than they are as a connector that really can help weave a story and connect the points that might be missing in a brand narrative that only something like music can do. So sometimes brands, when they look at DJs, they think of it as a niche group. Like, hey, our edict this year is we're going to reach out to the food community. So we're going to get some celebrity chefs involved. Oh, we want to reach out to the music community. So we're going to get some DJs. Our job has been to re-educate and say music has to be incorporated across everything that you guys are doing, not just when you need to hire a DJ for an event. Don't look at DJs as this kind of rogue asset class. Look at them as a tool in your toolbox to help connect to you and connect you to consumer. And, and we look at DJs as alpha tastemakers. Like these are the guys that are at the heads of their peer groups. They're the tip of the spear. When they wear the sneakers, they're just like any other celebrities in driving culture. Arguably, they're seeing things come down the pipeline way before other influencers and celebrities are. So DJs are really ahead of technology and fashion, music. You know, they see these things coming down the pipeline well before mainstream America. So we really try to educate brands to utilize them, not look at them as, you know, an outside asset class, but really important to helping them reach their consumers in an authentic way. But it's a challenge. What do you think it is about the cultural space of DJs that make them so forward thinking? I agree with you. I think there is a very unique element to what I call lifestyle and nightlife and all these components where people connect with one another in very social environments and, and hyper-connected social environments. What do you think drives that way in which they just seem to touch the future so naturally? A little bit broader. You'll appreciate this. A study was done not too long ago about high school archetypes. Who are the leaders in high school? And it used to be the high school quarterback, the jock, and the prom queen, you know, the head cheerleader. Yeah. Now it's the DJ and the skateboarder. I think people really respect authenticity. So DJs really made a decision at some point to say, hey, yeah, I'm not going to go out for basketball today or I'm not going to play football. That's just not me. But, you know, I'm going to geek out all day. And really, I mean, DJs, the best ones, you would joke when you go to their apartments, you open up their fridge and there's vinyl in there. They sleep with records underneath their pillows. I mean, it's not just a hobby. It's in their life force. It's in their DNA. And I think that carries a lot of weight in society where everyone is trying to be somebody and you get rewarded for doing that. But DJs are just themselves. And some of them are hyper quiet and introverted. And some of them are super extroverted, but authenticity shines through. And then, you know, on a more micro level, I think DJs have really analytical minds. And I think they're always pushing boundaries musically. And I think it's very easy for that to bleed into other areas of their lives that they have interest in. You know, it's not just going to be, hey, I have this personality trait and I'm only going to apply it to music. It's no, I'm, I'm also really into technology. So the same passion that I have for music, I'm going to apply some of that into fashion and technology and food. So I think it's a little bit in there, just their DNA. They're super inquisitive. They're super curious. They're very, very disciplined in what they do. And they're very creative, which is a really interesting mix of all these traits. On top of all that, when you do that, 
and you're doing it in your own way, you're authentic. And I think people really respect that. The tech piece is really interesting. And I want to talk about that a little bit, that the technology or technology rather has changed music so much in the sense that we've seen vinyl, we've seen CDs, we've seen MP3s. Now we're living in streaming and DJ equipment has also changed so much. And another piece that you talked about at the beginning, this idea of apprenticeship, right? Yeah. Where yeah. we started the conversation when DJ equipment were the turntables, whether techniques or pioneers, and you had to carry all this stuff and you had to also carry the records. A lot of DJs that I came up with, their apprenticeship was carrying the records. Yeah, carrying the crates. Carrying the crates of other DJs. And now, you know, we have the disc, you don't need all that. But I'm curious what you think, how technology has impacted the entire experience of DJing and what that means looking out into the future. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, luggage didn't have wheels on it. I don't yeah. know if you remember that, right? Like that person was a genius. The, right. That person made taking your luggage wherever you went one hundredth of the weight prior to that. Yeah. yeah. And that's effectively what's happened in the DJ space. And I just think that's the movement of, you know, that's the wave of invention and wave of technology. And and that's just applied to every single industry that you could think of. And that hit the DJ industry really hard about 15 years ago with Final Scratch Pro and all of the iterations and then Serato and Tractor and everything that's out there. And it basically allowed people to store their music on their computers. And, you know, prior to that, in a book of CDs, instead of having to lug crates around, for many DJs, it just didn't feel right. It didn't feel right flipping through songs on a screen to choose them as opposed to flipping through crates. And there's an expression called Serato face in the DJ world where DJs are just staring at their screen instead of actually looking through their records and stacking them you know, on top of each other or underneath the turntables as they're plotting their sets out. So a lot of DJs kind of were just not with it. But eventually technology really made the way. And now pretty much every DJ is a digital DJ to some extent. I think it was a force that ultimately everybody adjusted to. I don't think it's taken creativity out of the game, but certain things are lost. Just like when you had records, you had, and CDs, you had liner notes, you had album art, you had stories that could be told. Now you don't even own it. You're renting the song. And there's nothing that comes along with it. There's no album art. There's no liner notes. I used to tear those things up and read everything I could from those things. So you do lose some of the heart and soul and certainly some of the sound, the crackle of vinyl. But in exchange, you get a ton of ease and democratization. So because of it, it actually has allowed hundreds of thousands, millions more people to be able to interact with music in a way that they couldn't before. I think it's a curse and a blessing, but one of those things where there's no going back, you just have to really make sure that you're still bringing your sense of authenticity as an artist to it because the art form has changed. This technology piece, and you mentioned the perfect point, which gets me to my next question, this idea of renting music, right? Like when you're streaming and you're using one of these services to get a particular remix or a track or what have you, has this switch in the technology and the way the culture is moving gotten us away from ownership in a way that there was a certain, not just pride in owning certain types of music and having discovered it, that going into the rare record shop, finding that track, but also has it limited the scope of what's out there for available music, right? Because I think about myself, I'll just use a very quick example. I was a notorious downloader of music of all different types. It's really hard to find certain music never made it off of vinyl to digital. Like a lot of music in that 70s, 80s, particularly around house music, that kind of stuff. It just never got to digital in a form that I think is usable. There's some very bad MP3 stuff on YouTube, but it's not what a DJ would need. Do you feel like we're losing the archive of some of that musical history or 
I probably answer three questions at once. No, I yeah. get what I'm trying to say. Yeah, right? keep me on track if I go off on this, but you're a little bit of an anomaly and DJs are an anomaly. The best DJs are inclusive. They're not mm-hmm. exclusive, right? As is hip hop. Hip hop is inclusive. Inside of hip hop is R&B, is soul, is funk, is rock music. <laughs> There's yeah. country music. There's EDM. You name it. So the best DJs are inclusive and you're searching those record stores for those B-sides and those rare cuts and those don't really translate to the internet. So in that sense, we've lost some of that archive. That archive is special to people like you and me and, and many DJs out there. On the flip side, the world has gotten a much bigger musical library. Now, anybody, the barrier to entry is so low now. All you need is a laptop and you can create your own music. You can upload your own music. You can promote your own music and you can listen to everyone else's music. So A&Rs at record labels, you know, they used to travel the country, if not the world, going to bars, going to clubs, going to. Now they just troll YouTube, SoundCloud and MixCloud to see who's bubbling, see who's got the most views. The technology has democratized it in a way and opened up the archives. But if you're looking for that rare print, you're going to have trouble finding it. And that, unfortunately, we're going to have a lot of trouble. It's like a species that are going extinct. The record stores just aren't there anymore. So yeah, if we yeah. wanted to dig for that, you could spend hours. Now, you know, people are going online and spending hours on Spotify and YouTube and Mixcloud and SoundCloud and everything else that's out there. So I think the masses have gained because the availability of music is so pervasive now. But the specialists and the people that really looked for those B-sides, you know, it just doesn't translate well. My other piece on that is I was reading about a BPM Supreme, right? And they're a huge provider of tracks, for example. And they were talking about how they track music and find a way to make discovery a part of their platform. And they're awesome. So this is not a critique of what they do. But I'm curious, when I read things like that, sometimes I think to myself, like, oh, man, you know, like now every party I go to is going to kind of sound the same, right? Right. Because if you kind of track that, oh, this track is popping, so I'm going to use this track. And then before you know it, and we all know that there's that part in the party where they play the, the hits, right? Like, right, it's right, like, right, whatever's right. popping at this <laughs> yeah. moment, we're going to bring that to the forefront. But you don't want everything to sound the same. And I liken it to, I wrote a piece for Media Village a few months ago talking about monoculture. And is it possible with, obviously, like things like Instagram, we all know what the Instagram influencer shot looks like, right? So it makes it easy to replicate it. And I wonder if you're seeing, particularly with brands coming into the space now, do you think there's a risk that music in an event space can become that same thing, right? Where, oh, okay, this is a event thing, so I know it's going to sound like this. In the same way, I could look at an Instagram feed and say, okay, here's the sunset, here's the <laughs> here's the food shot, here's the this, 100%. here's the that. Like, what do you think about that monoculture Yeah, I think we refer to it in our company as the McDonaldization of culture, where you're kind of getting the same burger wherever you go. And some people want that, you know, Holiday Inn, you're getting the same bed, but it's been McDonaldized. You lose some of the soul and you lose some of the that old school grandfather that sat and talked to you about the way it was. And music is the same way. I mean, such a musically rich, especially in our country, right? all the genres that have been born here, all the amazing musicians. I went a couple of years ago down to Mississippi and spent some time with a musical anthropologist and did the blues trail. Robert Johnson and all the plantations where blues music was born post-Civil War because they had an excess of inventory of musical instruments from the Civil War. There was extra drums and extra horns that they used and they didn't know what to do with them. So they ended up on plantations and people started using them. And a lot of people credit that as giving birth to some blues music movements down in the South. And a lot of that doesn't translate well to technology. So a lot of that gets lost. Mm -hmm. And and when you funnel that all, when you put that in the pipe and funnel that all the way up, it's the same thing. 
that you have to really now take a risk to hear that new music and discover those B-sides. And it shouldn't be that way. That music should be a, equally a part of our culture. But I think we've been McDonaldized a little bit and give credit to the Instagram and everything else that's out there that only allows you to talk in 140 character sentences and put up pictures and post small videos and people just don't have time. Their inboxes go like this, their feeds go like this. And I think music is something that benefits on the whole, but loses kind of the depth of it. So you kind of get the width, but you don't get the depth. And the depth in music is really where you can lose yourself and find yourself. The best DJs take you there. The A-tracks and Z-trips of the world, they'll find a way to make you a part of that journey with them into discovering, you know, that Bob Marley, Mr. Brown song that you forgot you ever heard if you even ever heard it and find a way to integrate it into their sets to make you say, oh, yeah, okay, everything isn't just this perfect sunset. And music is exactly like that. So I, I think it's our job to really help promote the depth of the space as opposed to just the width. I love that. I think a lot of the work I do is focus on depths, right? The name of the show is The Deep Dive, right? right so right. anytime we can have a moment where we're talking about the depths to culture and pull things out of it, I think we're on the right track. Given the time, what I want to do is jump to my last two segments, which is Off the Dome is the first one. Yep. So I'm going to come at you with some questions and you just hit me with the first thought that kind of comes to your mind. All right. So this is painless. <laughs> some of these might be easy. Some of them might be hard and some of them are going to be a little biased. All right. We're talking about something that means you have in common. Right. First off the dome question. You can only choose one of these players. Grant Hill, Christian Leitner. Grant Hill. Easy. I love that. Although I will tell word? you in okay. college, I played tennis at Duke and Christian Leitner was from Buffalo, New York, and he had a best friend from home that was trying to play professionally. So he would train with us and Christian would come to our practices. And two mm -hmm. times Christian asked if I would play with him after practice. So I did. I played with him for an hour both times. And for I don't even know what he was, six foot 11. The guy was insanely nimble on the tennis court. He was just a phenomenal. Really? Yeah, I was shocked by it. I thought he would be clunky. And but my God, if he would have actually trained to become a tennis player, who knows? He wouldn't have stomped on any tennis players. But Grand Hill, hands down. <laughs> that is crazy. I wouldn't have thought he'd be. Me neither. I mean, you know, he's an athlete, got a lot of reach. But I wouldn't have thought off the top that he'd be like a really outstanding or a good tennis player. Yeah, it was crazy. Second question. What is your worst song to hear at a party? Oh, my God. It's classic, but I cringe at the Macarena. I've gotten over my fear of Cotton Eye Joe. Generally, line dances, although they're wildly popular, I'm just not that guy. But yeah. Macarena and Gangnam Style, they're yeah. for me. And no disrespect. They trash songs. Man, they're tough. Those ones are yeah, they're, they're sending they're me to the bar. If you can work with one brand around what their music profile should look like, who would it be? That's a great question. You know, I have a lot of respect for Red Bull. Red Bull does a DJ battle called Three Style, and they do it internationally. And they have brought out of pockets of the world some amazing DJs and given them a platform. A good friend of mine is DJ Puffy. He's out of Barbados, and he won DJ, you know, the Three Style battle a couple of years ago. And it has totally provided a platform for him to launch a career that wouldn't have been available to those otherwise. And he's such an amazing and talented DJ. And I really respect brands that take a chance on doing something like that and don't give up on it after a year or two. At the end of the day, Red Bull is selling a beverage and they need to market to get people to buy those beverages. Music is a great way for them to do it. And we see so many of their ads and they're so pervasive around us. But I love the fact that they've dedicated time and effort and money to the DJ space. And I'd love for them to continue to do that. I wasn't familiar with, you said DJ Puffy? Yes. Okay. My family's from Barbados. So anytime I hear a, a Bajan shout out, I'm ready to Yo, give it. So I awesome. will connect you too. He is, I mean, go onto YouTube and 
look up DJ Puffy three style routines and the routine he did to win the battle was just electric. And he's just on top of that. He's probably the sweetest person I know. He's an amazing guy. You'll, you'll love it. Awesome. I'll definitely check that out. Here's another basketball question. Coach K, great basketball coach or greatest basketball coach? I mean, superlatives are tough, but going from a devil's advocate, I'd be hard pressed <laughs> to find a better coach than him. The guy has withstood the test of time, judging by the fact that the program has been just clean for so many years in a culture where everybody's looking to find some dirt on somebody and the guy just manages to find a way to win, I'm going to say the greatest. Awesome. No disrespect oh, awesome. to John and, and this- or anybody else out there, but I mean, hard pressed hey, to find man. a better coach. We can have our biases. It's all good. Here's my last off the dome. You got one night, one party. Who's your DJ? Oh my God, that is a phenomenal, phenomenal question. And I'm not allowed to rotate DJs in. Uh, it's one DJ for the whole night. No, this is your guy. This is your person. Doesn't have to be a guy, but this is your yeah, person. Yeah, I'm going to have to go with uh, my man A Track. When I first started Scratch, I had a bunch of DJs in with Jam Master J, and they were auditioning for something that I was helping put together. And it was a lot of the, this battle crew called the Allies and the X-Men. So you had Infamous and A-Track and Spectacular, and you had Mr. Sinister and Fifth Platoon members, Daddy Dog and Rolly Ro- I mean, just the most elite battle DJs in the world. And I remember Jay, and it was also interesting for me because I've also found that the better the DJ, the lower their ego. On the platform, mm-hmm. when they're entertaining, their egos are high, but off of it, it's a community. It's a fraternity and sorority, cutting candy. I mean, just amazing respect for that art form. And Jay would sit there literally with his mouth open, but A-Track took an Al Miola guitar riff and deconstructed it and then rebuilt it into this beat-juggling routine that was just absolutely bonkers. And then he went on to be Kanye's DJ. And then he went on more into the EDM space, but he never forgot his roots as a battle DJ. And he's always taking audiences on musical adventures. I think he'd be my number one. Tough question though. Perfect, man. Perfect. I love a tough question. That's what we're all about. Now I want to get to the last segment before we wrap up, which is the drop. If you can give my listeners a recommended drop from you to them. Yeah. Well, something that sticks with me and kind of guides me on a daily basis. When I was a freshman at Duke, Maya Angelou came and gave our convocation. It was like our third day on campus and there was a big, we all got into the Duke Chapel, the whole freshman class. Wasn't a big class, you know, only 12 or 1300. And she gave a speech to us and she quoted a poet and a poem from this poet and a specific line from this poem And it just stuck with me so much that when I graduated, I called her office to find out who that poet was and what that poem was. And then I was fortunate enough to meet her about maybe 10 or 12 years ago. And I told her the influence this poet and poem and that convocation speech was for me. And the poet was a woman by the name of Edna St. Vincent Millay. And she was born in 1892, an American poet. She was the third female to ever win the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry. And she had a poem called The Conscientious Objector, which happened to be an anti-war poem. I'm not sure which war it was anti, if it was one or two. I think she died in the 50s. But the main line of the poem was, I might die, but that's all I'm going to do for death. The actual line is, I shall die, but that's all I shall do for death. And it just made me think of You know, if you're going to just put your heart into everything and if you're going to go down, you got to go down standing up and I might die, but that's all I'm going to do for death. And I think about that. And as an entrepreneur and running a business, you can't half ass things. You got to go hard and you got to go hard without knowing what the results are going to be. And you kind of have to throw not care, but some caution to the wind and just fight the good fight every day. And all of us have that challenge, right? We all have to get up in the morning and put on our shoulder pads and our helmet and fight the fight, whether that's at work or 
whatever that may be. That poem and that moment helped galvanize feelings in me about courage and fear and how we all have fear, but we have to kind of look fear straight in the eyes and take everything as we can head on every day. So I might die, but that's all I'm going to do for death. That's awesome, man. I love that. And it's interesting that both of our drops are centered on women. Right My drop comes from inspiration off a recent trip. I was in Mexico just last week and I was doing some workshops down there and I got a chance to take a little bit of time off. And I visited the Frida Kahlo Museum when I was in Mexico City. And I was familiar with her work in a broad culture sense, but I wasn't deeply engaged with her work prior to going to the museum. But it was a great referendum on her life, her work, her loves, her consistencies and inconsistencies. Subsequently, I watched um, the movie Frida with Selma Hayek, which was actually really, really good. And so my drop is, if you can get to Mexico City, definitely go to the Frida Kahlo Museum. But even if you can't, anyone out there should spend some time around her work, her life. A woman who created so much, particularly at times that she did, I think is a leadership model for anyone. So yeah, my drop is anything Frida Kahlo, but particularly the museum. And I love that poem. I'm going to go Google it. It's going to be in the show notes, but I'm going to Google it for myself in this moment. So that's awesome. So dude, this was great, man. I really appreciate you having me. You're amazing. You do amazing work. You're a great mind. And I appreciate you having me be a part of this. Thanks, brother. It's been a pleasure having Rob Principi join me on The Deep Dive. This is a great conversation on the power of music and DJ culture, relevant to people and brands alike. It was great to share the story of the origins of the DJ Scratch Academy and its evolution in DJ culture. There are valuable lessons to be learned from the perspective of the DJ as a futurist, artist, and musician. I hope you enjoyed the ride. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. Let us hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. And to all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, wherever you are in your life's journey, I thank you. See you on the other side.